From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. When Colorado went on lockdown, two writers on either side of the Continental Divide, who'd never met, began corresponding. We can't go to a restaurant or to Paris, but we can still lose ourselves in the wilderness we love. What if one doesn't have the luxury of choosing to live and write where and how we do? What if one has but a single patch of sky that she sees out a tiny, smog-smeared factory window? Their letters about place, politics, and the pandemic are collected in the book Airmail. Then, the ties that bind us, aprons, are the focus of a show at History Colorado. Why they are so much more than kitchen apparel. It has utility, but also just such memory, because I can remember, you know, coming home from school and mom would be in the kitchen cooking and wearing this apron. While journalism is retreating in many places across the country, CPR is putting more resources to work for you. Communities all over Colorado are in need of critical information, and your support ensures that trustworthy news remains freely available to Coloradans everywhere. As demand grows for CPR services, so does the need for additional resources. Your membership helps fund the important work ahead. A reliable way to give is monthly as an Evergreen member. Get started at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. The pandemic has kept people apart. It has exacerbated political divisions. But it's also been a chance to find connection, which we'll spend the first part of the show talking about. When Colorado went on lockdown, authors Amy Irvine and Pam Houston began corresponding, an email ritual focused on place, politics, and the pandemic. Their letters are collected in the book Airmail. And Pam, Amy, welcome to the program. Thank you. Nice to be here. Thanks for having us. This was an epistolary relationship on either side of the Continental Divide. Amy, you live in southwestern Colorado. Pam, you live near Creed. You'd known of each other. You're both published writers, often focusing on nature and environment. Uh, But do I have it right that you'd never met, Pam? Yeah, that's right. I had read Amy's Desert Cabal and loved it. And uh, we have so many friends in common and so many places we love in common, but we had never met in person. Amy, Pam was someone you knew of, huh? Oh, absolutely. Back way back when, in fact, partway through the book, after I've praised her early work, uh, short story collection, Cowboys Are My Weakness, I confessed partway through our letter writing that actually I had thrown that book against the wall after finishing it. Um, (laughs) We were really, really honest in these letters to one another. And that book was, well, I had to go to therapy over it and talk to my therapist (laughs) about it. (laughs) And it was because the woman, the protagonist in those stories (laughs) was not the woman I wanted to be. And of course, I was exactly that woman. It was a real mirror. And here we are several decades later, in some ways still talking about patriarchy and the problems with um, that were at the heart of those stories. So you were both familiar with one another's work. And then you begin this relationship. Let's hear your first letters to each other. Lockdown has just begun. And Pam, I think you had the first volley, right? I did indeed. This was March 28, 2020. Hi, Amy. Greetings from the east-facing side of the Great Divide. 
One of the things you and I have in common during this pandemic is that unlike most Americans who are sheltering in place, we have unrestricted access to vast parcels of the natural world right out our door. If I step down off my back porch and hop my fence, I am in the Rio Grande National Forest. If I keep walking, in a few hours, I'll enter the Wimanuch Wilderness. And after a couple days, I'll get to the San Juan National Forest, four million acres altogether. I can wander around for weeks up there, especially now that the tourists have been discouraged, without seeing another soul. In this way, we are the opposite of those Italians singing from their balconies. We chose these lives. We were lucky and worked hard and cashed in our white middle-class privilege precisely so we would have unrestricted access to wild country. And even COVID, which is threatening to shut down the entire world, won't keep us out. An amazement, really, as I watch all the parks, state and national around the country closing. We can't go to a restaurant or to Paris, but we can still lose ourselves in the wilderness we love. I've been thinking about the wildlands that get more use than ours, that grapple with a constant onslaught of people and are suddenly emptied of them. I picture the animals whispering to one another, do you think they're all dead down there? Then I picture them linking arms and dancing around the campfire. I hear the trees bending toward one another and singing. You might have seen the article in Forbes with the headline, Coronavirus lockdown likely saved 77,000 lives in China just by the reduction of air pollution. For all the suffering, heartache, grief, and economic catastrophe this virus will cause, I can't help but wonder what reevaluation of our priorities might come out of it. Will we learn we don't need so many choices? Will we get better at being instead of doing? Will we remember that we are actually nature? and neither its master nor the beneficiary of its charms, will clean air, just as one example, seem like a thing worth staying home for? Be well, Pam. Hmm. You know, I'd forgotten the folks singing in Italy where the virus hits so hard so early, and it's in such stark contrast to the natural scenes you paint. All right, Uh, Amy, your reply. This letter also from late March. Good morning, Pam. Hailing from the other side of the divide. I live off grid on a remote mesa that connects the 14,000 foot peaks of Colorado's San Juan Mountains with the red rock deserts of my Utah homeland. In every direction, there are millions of acres of public forests, canyons, basin and range. A quick morning walk in a shallow, unremarkable gully might reveal a mountain lion and her two teenagers playing on the hillside just 50 yards away. A scramble through jumbled boulders might prompt a spotted owl to rush out at you, to graze your head and send you reeling, the scrapes and bruises well worth the price of admission. The day Devin and I decided to marry, we were walking a stone's throw from the house when, in the dirt and duff, two matching arrowheads made themselves known. Like many writers, I believe that something akin to Thoreau's life at Walden was necessary for both craft and soul. Not an hour goes by that I'm not brought to my knees by the lands I live next to, the beauty, the freedom, and the promise that the natural world will go on despite our species' appetites and expansions. 
Since our shared governor issued a statewide stay-at-home order, I've been more grateful than ever for this wide open space to wander in, to be in relationship with. At the same time, I am aware that if this life is necessary for stories that connect us to the natural world, we will lose storytellers as quickly as we're losing people to this new virus. This life of ours cannot be the prerequisite. You ask, as public life contracts, if we might realize we need not so many choices. One hopes. What if one doesn't have the luxury of choosing to live and write where and how we do? What if one has but a single patch of sky that she sees out a tiny, smog-smeared factory window? If it's the patch of sky in China, it's a big deal. For the first time in a long while, tens of thousands of Chinese citizens can take a breath and not worry that the pollution will kill them. For the first time in many of their children's lives, they are seeing the sky is blue. We've taken these things for granted. Let's hope we get to take them for granted in the future by no longer taking them for granted here and now. I'm also curious to hear you say more about being versus doing. That seems like a major reset for America. How do you think we might manage this shift? So glad to be in conversation, Amy. Well, here we are more than a year later. Does anything you wrote strike you as naive or like jejun, Pam? Um, I, I, you know, I was worried when you said, please read the first letter. <laughs> I was worried I would sound incredibly naive. But honestly, you know, I might have said yes when we were in September or December when we were having so many more thousands of deaths than we anticipated, so many more cases worldwide. But now that, you know, now that we've been in it this long, I, I, I'm not so sure I would take any of this back. You know, we, we were chronicling a moment that we knew would change us and how we live forever. And, you know, we were trying to take it in and be present to it. And so if we imagined the future slightly wrong, I don't know. You know, I, I think that was part of our task was to to sit still and witness what we were seeing. And and I think we did a pretty good job of that. And I, I you know, I think both of us wondered once we figured out it was going to be a book, which was long after, hmm. even then I thought, Am I going to regret this? Is this going to seem completely irrelevant, you know, six months from now or a year from now? But but I don't think so. I think we were grappling with big questions that we'd been thinking about a long, long time as we've watched the climate collapse, as we watched the Clean Air Act get rescinded, as we watched the Clean Water Act get rescinded. I think that the heart of it and the meat of it pertains and will for as long as we live. Well, just to clue in on something that uh, you said there, that the pandemic in this past year have led to forever changes. Do you do you buy that, Amy? Oh, I think so. I mean, we were on our way to forever changes anyway with climate change. Mm. Um, I think the fires that we saw in our own state this year were evidence of something that we're not going to away from, but toward, um, which is a hotter, drier, more fiery future. 
I also think that there were ways that we realized what we could live without and things that we really needed. Let me probe that for you. What what can you live without? <laughs> um, I can live, I think Pam and I would first and foremost both say a lot of air travel. Um, I can live without working like Americans work and go back to something sort of civilized. Or And I'd like to, to continue to push for that, like pe- for people to have a quality of life again, where they actually get time with their families, they get enough sleep, you know, that they get some exercise, that they, you know, that all those ways that life has balanced and sustained us, if we don't find those, I don't know how we balance a sustained society or the planet for that matter. You both acknowledge your own privilege in these letters. And, uh, you know, the, the image of someone in China who has only the smallest patch of sky. Were you concerned that this would sound like kind of like white elitist pandemic experience? Pam? Sure. Of course we were. I mean, we were having a white elite, elitist pandemic experience, you know. So, of course, it sounded like we were. I'm not wealthy, <laughs> you know, except by a a world standard where, of course, I'm wealthy. And I was able to have food through the whole pandemic. Um, Miraculously, because of Zoom, I was able to keep my job. I was extremely lucky. And, you know, I I have my university position uh, because of, of how the world works. I understand that, you know. But I also think it's super important that we don't stop having these conversations just because we come at them from a position of some privilege. I was also kicked out of my house as a young person. I also lived in my tent for three years. Like, you know, we're all these mixed bags of privilege and hardship. And white people in general have a lot of learning to do and a lot of listening to do. But I also don't think that means that we shouldn't be talking about whether we should get on airplanes once a week for our jobs or how we can help bring about social justice, even though we are not the recipients of much of the violence that comes because social justice is broken in this country. Like, Mm -hmm. I think we have to be part of the conversation. So we worked very hard at trying to fess up to our own privilege and also to speak in real ways about how we can work toward changing the story of this country. Nature and the West are core to both of you as authors, as people. Pam, your books indeed include Deep Creek and Cowboys Are My Weakness. Amy, you've written Trespass and Desert Cabal. If I can have each of you describe the spot in Colorado where you were in lockdown and how your relationship to those places changed in the pandemic. Amy? You know, the very first day of lockdown, I knew that I'd be fortunate because I live on a remote mesa where we had infinite freedoms in terms of getting outside and having an adventure or an encounter with, you know, an animal or just there was a way that we weren't locked in. And, you know, hearing from my friends in 
big cities who were stuck in tiny apartments or students that were alone, uh, very isolated and unable to make contact with people. And just what um, another native friend who uh, was in a domestic violence situation and needed to get out of there in the middle of everything being shut down. I felt like I had this spaciousness, but I was also really painfully aware of the people in my life or beyond my life that were really in a tight spot and had no way to blow off steam or escape the situation that they were in. And that just sort of amplified, I think, what's been a problem in this country for a long time. Um, the, the social injustice is so apparent in housing and how much we can get away and get out and what kind of access we have to public lands. I think the second part of that is a lot of the quiet, lonely little places that I go to suddenly because everybody was home and traveling with their camper vans um, and looking for new places to recreate and people falling in love again with the nation's own public lands. There were a lot of people out there. And I live sort of sandwiched between uh, Moab, Utah and Telluride, Colorado. And those are two very privileged places, top destinations for recreationists. And when those towns couldn't, you know, hold all the people that were seeking an adventure there, they all sort of flooded out into places they haven't been and more power to them for getting out. I mean, that's great. But I thought, wow, um, I no longer think of the West as infinite. Oh my, that's a big shift for you, I have to think. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I knew it was coming. It was, you know, we all have our own bubble and mine was that there were still so many places to get lost and and of course there are, but we're we're that was the whole point of Desert Cabal in the first place and then I Pam and I certainly came back to this is just the sheer numbers of people and what that does to life on the planet. Pam, uh, how did your relationship with place, and specifically the place where you spent lockdown, how did it change in the year or so that we have been living this seeming alternate reality? Well, in the first place, it was wonderful to be there every day and see the seasonal changes. And I was able to nurse a lamb. I raise Icelandic sheep. So I was able to nurse a lamb whose mother rejected him and um, I was able to watch the snow melt and the river rise and things that my prior life where I was literally back and forth to the Denver airport and on a plane and to a job didn't allow for. I got to discover all kinds of hiking places that I had never been, old clear cuts and things that, you know, just really got into the nooks and crannies of where I live. That said, I was really discouraged by the people in my part of Colorado who didn't believe in the virus and didn't mask and didn't want to take care of each other. And that made me really sad because I thought that they would take care of each other. You know, it's a small community. Um, And so that really hurt and shocked me, honestly. I got called a name at the post office a few times for wearing a mask. And I actually got not near my house, but about 50 miles away, I got run off the road by a a truck with Trump flags. And so things happened during the pandemic that that made me feel less safe and um, and less welcomed into my community. And and I'm still not over it, frankly. Mm -hmm. You know, I haven't really figured out how to deal with it. How ritualistic did you get about 
your correspondence back and forth, times of day, um, greetings. And I do wonder why it wasn't truly airmail. In other words, you did not write letters pen to paper. Amy? Well, to speak to the, the last thing first, we didn't put pen to paper because this started as an assignment for Orion magazine. As soon as the pandemic was declared official, uh, Orion magazine reached out to me and said, hey, we'd like to start this new column called Together Apart, Letters from Isolation. And they initiated these correspondences between environmental thinkers, writers, poets, and um, they asked me who I'd like to, with whom I'd like to correspond for the inaugural column. And I said, Pam, because that morning we had had a very sweet exchange on Facebook. And I just, I didn't even think about it. It was very visceral. And I quickly realized why we did, because it's like we'd been waiting our entire lives to meet each other. And we can't believe that we kept missing one another. And, mm. and so to harken back to one of your questions, you know, how were we changed by the pandemic. One was forging such a powerful relationship through letters, through correspondence, even though they weren't good old fashioned letters, but that's how it began. And then there was sort of a turnaround. So we were, we were going back and forth pretty quickly at the beginning. So there was no real ritual to it other than we were waiting at the computer for the letter to come in. And then we treated them like real letters. And after we finished up those first few letters that became the Orion piece, we said, let's keep writing. And we did. We kept writing and the pandemic got worse and George Floyd was killed and, you know, sort of things just intensified as the year wore on. There was a big election that we were all sitting on the edge of our seats for. And so all those things we had to talk about and we just kept writing. Pam, is it okay that I'm a little disappointed that it wasn't pen to paper stamps and envelopes? Is that okay as a reader for me to be bummed? It is okay. You might <laughs> remember that the post office was essentially collapsing last summer. Um, so that might make you feel a little better that we would not even have this book because if we had not been able to email the letters, the letters would have sat in the post office, especially the rural post offices for two weeks, and it probably would have never been a book. Did either of you get COVID? Yes. Yeah, um, I believe I brought it back from Asia late in 2019. Um, I wasn't tested. I was a few weeks ahead of the whole thing, it seems. Um, but I suspect it was COVID-19 or a COVID. I was very sick with all the classic symptoms and uh, I was treated with three rounds of antibiotics for a very severe pneumonia, and I, I'm still not right. I'm sorry to hear that, Amy. Pam, do you want to share a bit of your experience? Sure. I got COVID also undiagnosed in early February 2020 from a good friend of mine who I was sharing a hotel room with uh, on a book tour. You know, again, classic symptoms, loss of taste and smell, sicker than I'd ever been in my life. But I wasn't absolutely sure that it was COVID. I mean, of course, I didn't, I had no idea it was COVID then because they hadn't said COVID was in the country. But after the fact, I wasn't sure until about six months later when I started to get so many of the long COVID symptoms, oh. which has made me more sure <laughs> that it was COVID. Like what, Pam? Um, uh, a lot of really intense anxiety, quite a bit of nerve pain, weird fatigue that hits out of nowhere for seemingly no reason. 
that's the most of it. The real thing is anxiety because I've really never had anxiety. And this is not anxiety that's attached to a set of circumstances. It's bodily anxiety. And I have had good friends describe this to me all my life, but I didn't understand it till now. But both of you got COVID early. I mean, you got COVID before it was cool, I guess. <laughs> exactly. That's exactly I what I I don't said. mean to make light of your plight, by the way, but I appreciate <laughs> that you laughed. Um, no, that's exactly what I say about it. I got COVID before COVID was cool. What do you hope readers get out of this? And I know that was a question going into whether to make this a book. Amy? It seems like there's sort of a short range and a long range sort of answer to that. Um, last year, I thought we felt very much like, could we get these letters out before the election and galvanize people to participate? We felt like we could speak to a lot of privileged white women that, that live in Colorado and sort of um, in these small tourist towns that we're in and out of for our work. And because, you know, we pass through them, we go there for groceries, we, you know, all those kinds of things. We noticed that a lot of people who live in those really cushy bubbles weren't as concerned about what, what was happening in the country and with the election as we were. And I, of course, that's a blanket statement, but there, our goal was to see if we could just galvanize people to participate in our democracy. Now, looking back, I have sort of a longer range view on it, which is, you know, right now there's multiple <laughs> fictions out there about what reality we're inhabiting. <laughs> and um, it, it feels really important to have chronicled our experience and to assemble pieces that we that of news that we heard or experiences we had along the way. And even in the aftermath of the book, the book tour was <laughs> something because we traveled through Colorado at the height of COVID and did these outdoor distanced readings with people who hadn't been out of their houses all year. And all we can, they're bundled up. It was last fall and, you know, masked and all we can see are their roomy eyes and their, this look of just utter fatigue and desperation and exhaustion. And we were literally leaving towns as fires were coming in and people like the places we stayed were evacuated the next day. And we were giving readings while the ash is raining down from like the Cameron fire on, uh, up near Granby. And it was an extraordinary, like unforgettable Armageddon book tour as we ended up calling it. And, you know, to remember that as much like what people needed and, and the, then the letters we got, the comments afterwards about how uplifting the book felt in a time of extreme isolation and hopelessness felt, felt like maybe we did something for a few people. Yeah. I know it helped us. I mean, it kept, uh, kept us afloat. Mm -hmm. Do you miss the letters? Pam? I miss them so much. And I've really realized this spring, because we're in the same time of year when Amy and I were writing the letters, I realized how much they held me together. They gave me hope for the future. They gave me something to look forward to. They gave me a way to express what I was feeling. And I've really missed them this year um, in, intensely, especially as we got around to the time of year that were coincident with the letters, which was late March. But the other thing I want to say about, you know, how the book reads now or what is its goal, in addition to everything Amy said, which I completely agree with, the two-tiered goal, um, 
you know, my whole life at this age has become about empowering women, young women, but not always young women, to step into their own power and to make the world that we can envision if more women were in charge of it. And I do that in very specific ways. I'm a teacher in two graduate programs. I mentor young women writers. But I want all women, whether they're artists or writers or not, to say, okay, that was awful. (laughs) (laughs) Let's see what we can do to keep that from happening again Mm. and to run for office and to get involved civically and to understand that, you know, this idea that we somehow can't participate just isn't true. It's something we've been taught to believe that we have to unteach. And really, once we get into the meat of the book, you know, that's what the book's about. It's about how do we stop being gaslighted and step into our own power and our own sense of how the world can work. Because I just believe there's so much opportunity there. A pretty obvious reference to a former president there, I think, Pam. Okay. Is that a question? (laughs) (laughs) Is that a question? You know, it's not just about him. You know, he was just the He was Frankenstein's monster. It's the way we've been told all our lives to help and assist and be quiet. And that's the thing that can't continue if we have any hope of surviving. Amy, do you miss the letters? Oh, terribly. And I'm having the same experience. Like, oh, it's spring. And I texted Pam the other day and I'm like, are you mad at me? Because I, <laughs> where are you? And we've both been very busy and we've both been trying to get our feet under us again. Like, how do we live now? How do we write now? How do we teach now? And um, there's sort of a, all this sort of rubble to dig out from under. I think I'm guessing we all have a little bit of PTSD that we haven't even learned how to articulate yet in terms of last year. And we were kind of glued to each other's sides last year and literally held one another up. And I feel like I'm missing this appendage or my twin. And um, it says a lot about the power of the sisterhood, says a lot about the power of writing letters, taking that time and devoting it to getting your ideas on paper and responding to somebody else's and, and how much there's this intimacy and this intelligence that comes through that doesn't in our other forms of communication these days. Yeah. I'm trying to picture your texts back and forth as a book and it seems a little less delicious. (laughs) (laughs) No, we really didn't text while we were writing, while we were writing letters. They were emailed and typed into a computer, but we took them very seriously as letters. As Pam likes to say, we were trying to impress each other and we had to come up, we had to Google the word, what we know about the bromance that men can have with one another. But apparently when two women end up really clicking and having this friendship, it's, what did we decide it was? Womance. It's the womance. <laughs> womance, W-O-M-A-N-C-E. Did this ever result in meeting in person, who who wants to take that? I can. Yes. Um, after we had written all the letters and after we had done about two months worth of editing in 10 days, 
it turned out that Amy and I were both going to be in Santa Fe on the same weekend in July. And we met outside of her hotel room. I went to the Shake Foundation and got us milkshakes and green chili cheeseburgers. It was Amy and her daughter. And we sat outside 12 feet apart and ate green chili cheeseburgers and drank milkshakes and started to talk at about five o'clock. And at some point, Amy's daughter went to bed and at two in the morning, we were still talking, <laughs> continuing the conversation. And it was just like we hit the ground running. That was the great thing is like there was so much to talk about and it was so easy because we'd already created something. Thanks to both of you, Pam, Amy. I really appreciate it. All right. Thank you. Thanks for having us, Ryan. Amy Irvine and Pam Houston, whose pandemic letters appear in the new book, Air Mail. Irvine lives in southwestern Colorado. Her books include Desert Cabal and Trespass. Houston lives near Creed and is the author of Cowboys Are My Weakness and Items May Have Shifted. And we'll be right back with why aprons are so much more than just kitchen apparel. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Social equity. Maybe you've heard that term. Maybe you're wondering, what does that even mean? Hi, I'm Anne-Marie Awad. I host CPR's podcast, On Something. This season, we're going to unpack that term, social equity, what it means for legal weed, and what it can teach us about creating a fairer society. Billions of dollars are spent placing a war on drugs instead of to schools, to hospitals, community centers. And so There's more in the first episode of season three of On Something, everywhere you get your podcasts. It was the best 25 cents Ellen Ann Geisel ever spent. She bought her first apron at a thrift store. She says it changed her life. Geisel, who lives in Pueblo, is the driving force behind a traveling exhibition called Apron Chronicles, a patchwork of American recollection. The show ends its 16-year run at History Colorado. And Ellen Ann, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. This is one of my favorite radio shows, so I'm delighted to be here. Oh, my goodness. A nice thing to say. You are clad in a bright yellow apron with hens all over it. Do you want well, to say a few words about the current apron? Did you actually think I'd show up for an interview about <laughs> aprons without one of my favorites? I didn't. <laughs> I'm so glad you did. Will you tell me about that first apron, the 25-cent apron? It was to inspire me for writing an article, which was going to be my second career after a 26-year career as a homemaker. And I needed an apron to give me some depth to, it, it was the symbol for what ha, I had done. It was the domestic armor of someone else. And it was in that purchase that I imagined that the woman who had sewn it and worn it every day, her spirit was there, woven into the threads. It was much more about her and connecting to her through the through the apron, and that led me to storytelling, to going on a four-year apron journey, and meeting people all over America who had an apron story to share. It was almost an apron osmosis. There was a phrase you used there, domestic armor. Say more about that. 
long ago, in the long ago days, <laughs> we didn't have so much. Laundry was an arduous process, so we tended to take very good care of the few items that we did have, and an apron was the armor that guarded the clothing underneath from stains. So you had two sides. One would have been your working side, and the other would have been your indoor side. How old were you when you bought that first apron the, at the thrift store? I have to do math on air? Okay. Live, even. It was 20 years ago, so I was 53. 53. Okay, this is surprising to me because, as you'd mentioned, you'd been a homemaker, inspired, I understand, since you were a little girl by a 1950s TV family. The Adventures of Ozzie and Harriet, starring the entire Nelson family, Ozzie, Harriet, David, and Ricky. Here is Ozzie, who plays the part of Ozzie Nelson. And, of course, his lovely wife Harriet as Harriet Nelson. The, older the intro Nelson there to Ozzie and Harriet, the telegenic embodiment of mid-century domestic bliss. But I, I'm just so curious how you armored yourself in the kitchen for all those decades without an apron, your own apron. I am ashamed to admit it. I, I wiped my hands on my clothes, obviously thinking more laundry was preferable to some sort of coverage. It never occurred to me to put on an apron. I didn't even own an apron. And so writing this article got you thinking about aprons, and it meant your first apron. And this idea to showcase them as symbols of memory and family, I understand it actually got off to a slow start you put a call out to friends, 50 postcards asking for stories. You got just one reply. Then comes the idea of a basket. Tell me about this basket. I thought, what have I not done correctly that the single apron affected me so deeply, and yet 49 other people uh, did not respond. And I thought, maybe, maybe you have to see the aprons to actually experience the aprons. So I got an old laundry basket. I plied them with aprons. I put it on my hip, and for four years, I took it everywhere I went. And people say, no, everywhere, honestly. I would be in line at Coors Field to the bathroom. I had it. I was in line to get a mammogram. I had it. You name it. I was on airplanes. Every place I went, it was a magnet to attracting people and the storytelling that would result from that. Yeah, it became a tactile experience for folks. And what, they would start telling you stories? Did you have a tape recorder embedded in the basket or what? How would you document all this? I would make relationships. Uh, people, I needed them to trust me right off the bat. And so I was interested in, in their life, in their storytelling. Their families were bored of hearing them. And here was this girl who was uh, saying, oh, do tell me more. So I would get people's contact information mm. and I would stay in touch. And circle back and get their stories. Yes, eventually it was through letter writing, it was through emails, it was through phone calls. Some people I worked for years to hear their story so that it would have uh, meaning to be in some sort of project I was envisioning. But for those four years, I had no idea why I was collecting aprons. Why? And yet, uh, we now have this exhibition. There's a book as well. Uh, we are talking 
with Ellen and Geisel of Pueblo, uh, the creator of Aprons, The Ties That Bind Us. So that's the book. And uh, then there's the show at History Colorado, wrapping up this uh, almost two decades long national tour. And in the book, uh, the narratives you gathered are accompanied by photos, portraits taken by Christina Loja. Uh, Tell us about the woman on the cover. What's her name? That would be the face of the exhibit, Miss Ada Florence Ashford. And in seeking voices that told me something about the American patchwork, one of the voices I was not finding was an African-American woman who had grown up in the, in, the, in the Jim Crow South. It took me a while to meet somebody who knew somebody who set me up with Miss Ada. But when you read her story, it's not anything about that. She talks more about opportunities and um, how you can make your life um, out of lemons. You can have lots and lots of lemonade. Will you describe... Uh, her apron? It's a humble apron, and her posture in the photo is, people would say to me, are you kidding me? Is that like a background you set up? No, that was her actual kitchen, and the glow of the yellows and her gorgeous skin tone. It is an ethereal photo, but there is an intensity to her gaze. She she owned that moment. It was her story, her face, um, her spirit uh, as part of the patchwork. I mean, I can imagine some of the stories that aprons would tell that belong to African-American women in the South. Um, and, and we have talked here too for uh, about women. How, how was it to find men with cherished aprons? The men had the very same reaction to my basket of aprons that females did, which really surprised me. And they were actually more emotional because they were going right back to their mothers and grandmothers, whereas women, you know, they kind of, uh, some were not as attached to the apron or perhaps had issues, you know, with, with other women in their families. But men were extremely emotional. On Twitter, we asked folks who have a beloved apron to share a photo and a few words. And Colleen Murphy of Denver snapped a selfie with a whimsical apron, which her parents recently came across during a move. It's dotted with thumbprints from her 2001 preschool class. I think it was because my mom was the class mom and was then gifted this apron and it has all the thumbprints of the class and made into little butterflies or bumblebees or something it says thanks to the world's buzziest mom we love you and so she came across this and asked if I wanted it and I said of course what a cool memory and it's been so cool to look back and say oh I still I'm friends 20 years later with Emily and I still know Kalina and I don't know who the heck Logan is, but <laughs> I wonder where he is. <laughs> <laughs> How many aprons do you own today? Not as many as I did at a time. At the height of the whole thing, it, there, I had about 600. 
Oh, my goodness. But I have had to divest. I could not wear all the aprons I have and do justice to their memories. So I have, I don't just give away one. You have to be ready to get dozens of aprons. And I found it was a lot easier for me to give them away to appreciative people than to just toss them. I, I could never have tossed them. What about that first apron? Does that remain in your possession? Yes, it does, uh-huh. and and it's one of my special aprons. You know, I I still have way too many to move into a downsize situation, but I'm going to have a hard time giving them up. Are are they all kitchen aprons, or did you find that aprons were used elsewhere as that kind of domestic? armor. Oh, no. Aprons had <laughs> many, many personalities. A woman told me that after World War II, when for one of her engagement gifts from one of her aunts was a wardrobe of aprons. She had seven aprons, and everything was from the fancy and frilly to the domestic armor. Mm-hmm. As we mentioned earlier, the show at History Colorado, uh, it's closing at the end of the month, ends the 16-year journey for this exhibit. What, what does that mean to you? I equate my exhibit, which, which debuted three years after 9-11, before we, I, I felt America was on an okay four-legged table. Uh, sometimes you had to put a shim under one of the legs to mm. balance it a tad. A bit wobbly. Yeah, but after 9-11, we became different. We became suspicious of one another. We became narrow-minded. We became not very nice to each other. All these years later, we're still that three-legged table. But Abram Chronicles provides a way for us to find our place inside uh, the patchwork. And where the stitching in the patchwork is very loose and about to strain itself, our stitching can shore it up. And where it's so tight, which I equate to narrow-mindedness, our stitching is going to loosen it because... You can find yourself in the patchwork. You don't have to have walked in the storyteller's exact steps, but you'll find yourself. And by doing that, we are more alike than different. That's what we're going to celebrate. And when it comes to the human experience, it's not a path you walk alone. We're all in it together. The poetry there, the symbolism there, and then just to pick up on the symbol in the title of the book that you put together, The Ties That Bind. Actually, my book is called The Apron Book. The Ties That Bind is the larger sense of the exhibit. Of the exhibit. Yes. Well, I'm glad you set the record straight. Ellen, thank you so much for being with us and for uh, wearing this sunshine yellow apron into the studio today. It's been a pleasure to tie one on with you. An (laughs) apron, of course. Ellen Ann Geisel of Pueblo is the creator of Apron Chronicles, a patchwork of American recollections. It's on exhibit at History Colorado through the end of the month. And thanks to the team of cooks who help us scare up a show every day. Carl Bielek. Allie Butner. Anthony Cotton. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Avery Lill. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. And I'm Ryan Warner. Shall we tie up the loose ends of this show and pass the baton? We'll do that. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.